G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for dangerous ideas. I first met Eric Weinstein before the pandemic. He came to Sydney and he did a, a, a big day-long event with his brother, Brett Weinstein, uh, and Sam Harris, and Majid Nawaz, and Douglas Murray. And I was the moderator of these intellectual dissidents from scattered portions of the global community of ne'er-do-wells and troublemakers uh, for a what ended up being a failed and controversial uh, event run by a huckster who never paid us. Uh, nonetheless, Eric was fascinating. He is the man who coined the term the intellectual dark web to try to kind of put his arms around this phenomenon of people who were interested in talking about controversial political and cultural issues in a heterodox way, meaning a way that doesn't align neatly with left or right, with the institutional biases of mainstream media and polite company and conventional thinking. And that uh, that moniker, that grouping, that intellectual kind of uh, idea of, of there being a cohort of such people has collapsed completely and disintegrated uh, because some of those people have gone spinning and spiraling off into what you might think of as crazy town, into intense COVID conspiracy thinking, anti-vaccine uh, beliefs, uh, stridency about politics, uh, gone down the Trump rabbit hole, uh, you know, whether or not people like Dave Rubin or Ben Shapiro were ever part of this group is open to question. Eric Weinstein's brother, Brett Weinstein, who was, I suppose, a friend of mine and ours and part of the same intellectual cohort, has subsequently become quite possessed and obsessed with what I would call vaccine misinformation. He thinks he's just digging into the truth of the various anomalies about vaccines, but he has ended up in a place where he produces a podcast that persistently pushes one point of view, the skeptical point of view, about the pandemic and vaccines. And I ask Eric in during this about his thoughts about what's happened to his brother during this period. Nonetheless, Eric remains one of the smartest people I've ever met. So smart, he's hard to keep up with at times. I try to keep him under control here. Um, I mean, he's he has a PhD in mathematical physics from Harvard. Like, do I, <laughs> if you tried to combine a bunch of words to make a person sound smart, it would be PhD, mathematical, Harvard physics. Um, he's now the managing director of uh, Teal, Capital, which is Peter Thiel's uh, um, financial concern. Thiel is a a Trump uh, sort of conservative, multi-billionaire, co-founder of PayPal and other Silicon Valley giants. Eric is politically completely different from Peter Thiel, from his boss. Uh, Eric is more of a a Bernie Sanders bro frankly. But politics is the least important and least interesting thing about him. 
And in this conversation, we try to get our arms around what's important for us to understand about the fate of the world, why everything has gone bizarrely, wildly wrong, whether the media is rigged, uh, what the future will hold, and how to keep your head on straight. Oh, by the way, there's just one thing that I should explain uh, before you listen to this, because there are many things that Eric will drop into the conversation that we can let slide. But one thing when he's talking about the origins of the coronavirus and uh, why we were so reticent to consider uh, man-made explanations uh, like the lab leak hypothesis is he talks several times about uh, about the uh, the furin cleavage site on the virus. The, if you haven't heard of the furin cleavage site, uh, that is a bit of the spike protein of the coronavirus that causes COVID, which seems to be different from other coronaviruses. Researchers say that this could have occurred by random mutation or recombination or insertion in a lab. People who are suspicious that the virus came accidentally from animals will point to this furin cleavage site and say that the possibility of random mutation is too low, the likelihood to explain the origin of the furin cleavage site. So when you hear him talking about that, he's basically saying there's a, an aspect of the virus that uh, is not amenable to likely explanation as an accident of evolution. I'm not informed enough as a virologist to, um, to know how to adjudicate that, so I just let it slide. But that's what that means. I hope you enjoy this conversation with the one and only Eric Weinstein. Just imagine me wearing a sport coat. I'll imagine you wearing a sport coat. I, I mean, I'll imagine you wearing all kinds of things. A Groucho Marx disguise, a silly hat, a Carmen Miranda hat with a pineapple on it. Who knows? The, ero- the erotic tension is palpable. <laughs> exactly. As long as you're pantless, Eric. Pantless. Uh, I don't do interviews any other way, sir. <laughs> Excellent. I actually did that sometimes when I was back on HuffPost Live, uh, just for a lark. You know, the cliche of the, the anchor with no pants. Uh, I think it's a marvelous thing, but in the post-Tubin era, I, I must <laughs> caution you, sir. <laughs> wow. What did you make of the whole... I mean, just look, we can talk about anything and everything, but just while we're on the subject of of looking at people's faces and, uh, and Zooming and all that, uh, a few weeks ago, I was talking to a friend who I hadn't caught up with in a long time, and she lives uh, in a part of Sydney that's about 50 minutes. 50 sorry, John, minute. I do have to ask. Yeah, we haven't begun yet, have we? Oh yeah, we'll just fade in wherever. <laughs> <laughs> Were you thinking that maybe the quality of the conversation wasn't quite up to par yet? Well, I, I was thinking that beginning with uh, <laughs> an anecdote, an anecdote about uh, a CNN now contributors. We cut to Eric Weinstein already in studio. <laughs> That's right, Josh, exactly. Good to be There's with no, you. Yes, thank you, Eric. There's no walk on here. We don't go. Uh, we don't do. Ladies and gentlemen. <clears throat> Mr. Eric Weinstein, and then the band plays. Yeah, the roar of the crowd. There you go. I'm walking on. So I was speaking with a friend of mine, and I hadn't seen her in a while. She lives almost an hour away from me, and I was trying to coordinate when we'd be able to get brunch. And she said, she texted, well, we could just do Zoom, you know. And I was like, are you fucking insane? After we put up with two years 
of looking at your pixelated, stupid faces on my computer screen. You think I'm ever going to willingly go back to looking at someone on a screen instead of face to face? I'd rather just talk to you on the phone or text you. Like there, for me, the Zoom, for me, Zoom never added anything unless you were in a meeting with like five plus people and you had to see them all and wrangle them all. I was like, why are we bothering with the face at all? Call me. Yeah, I don't think we're ourselves anymore. What does that mean? Um, I think we have now integrated so deeply with this dystopic electronic experience that people who did not spend an enormous portion of their life prior to this fusion of technology and wetware, um, I, I think that in general people have just accepted an extremely degraded concept of what it means to be a human being because it is always more convenient. Is that because of the zoomification of life during the pandemic or because of social media and devices in our pockets all the time or an interesting question i think that the phone has made certain changes in our brains that have nothing to do with um what we would expect you know we, we might expect that it would make us more sedentary which it did we might expect that uh it you know does something with our dopamine but i think what we didn't really realize is that it destroyed the character of being a human being as we scroll and graze and shout at each other and switch contexts and between apps. I think it really ended up reprogramming our minds to be things that have never existed at any point in history. That sounds like you're saying something has already happened, which a lot of yep. futurists are sort of saying will happen in like the 20 to 50 year time frame. No, it's, our, it's already you know, when I talk to people who identify as book people, particularly older people, and then I ask, when was the last time you read, you know, how long has it been since you've read three books? Mm. They haven't really computed that they haven't read books in ages. Mm. That's That strikes me directly in my heart, Eric, because it's one of those things where during the pandemic I lost... I mean, I'm not blaming the pandemic for this. I'm saying during the window of time in which the pandemic was taking place, I lost the ability or inclination to finish a novel. Exactly. I can still read nonfiction, but I can't finish. I've re- I've finished one novel since the pandemic, so that's in 12 months. I've managed to. I've re- I've tried about four, and I've finished one. And I so, used to read a novel a month. So let's let's imagine that we start taking that across different art forms. Um, I am a music person. Uh, I, I you know to say I live for music is slightly too strong, but it's close. I don't feel music anymore the way I used to, and it, it's not that I don't know where the great music is, and it's not like I don't know which symphonies matter to me or which jazz ensembles I, I view as being brilliant or the blues that I, animates me. I just don't register music remotely similarly to the way that I used to. And I, I know that that's true because occasionally I can find a piece of music that for a period of time uh, proves to me that I'm still capable if I find something. But I I think it's it, it's spread out over a couple of different issues. One issue is that the phones and the availability and the way in which we uh, interact with music um, has changed. 
I think another thing is, is that our artists have no idea what world is happening. And so their reflection of it back to us is really much more meaningless than, say, the artists of the 1960s who seem to have their finger on the pulse of the time. And you were almost listening to music as if it was a news report because it was telling mm. you what was happening. Maybe there's less of a pulse of the time, though. Like maybe there is less of a single pulse than there was then because we're all consuming so many different streams of information and we're living in an increasingly fractalized, pixelated world of information bubbles. I don't know. Are you having yeah. the same experience as I am well, that can be refracted to you through music? Not really. Um, I started writing music and, you know, I just played a song for my son and, you know, went through the lyrics and things. And he said, wow, that really that really does reflect our time. And I now understand better what you mean that our music doesn't reflect our time. I would say that in, uh, oh, geez, it's hard to even feel that. If, if you look at my explanation for why everything has gone wildly, bizarrely wrong, um, it, it attempts to find almost a single etiology, which is that we had a free society, uh, particularly in the Anglophone nations, built on expectations of very high, broadly distributed, technologically-led stable growth. And that when that equation was shown not to be an eternal fact of capitalism or democracy, uh, you had an entire system that hungered for growth that could not get itself fed. And that single explanation of what I've called embedded growth obligations, which is the stall speed for an institution uh, it has to grow at a certain rate because of what it has promised everyone that it will do, or it becomes um, so, so sociopathic. That one explanation, I think, is a, is pretty terrific in terms of a first pass at why everything has gone nuts. But the interesting thing to me is there really isn't a great market for trying to find explanations of why things are so screwed up. In fact, one of the things that will happen is if you start to have that conversation, somebody will say, well, are things really any different than the way they were before? And somebody else will muddle it out with, um, you know, oh, people have always been nostalgic for previous eras. And it's very clear that this is an anomalous era. I think you can, you, you know, going back to music, you can look at it in terms of musical complexity um, or attention spans or, you know, what it is that we're consuming. You can measure things. I don't think we're looking for explanations. Things have gone mad. And one of the most interesting things is that we're entirely disinterested. Let me just pick some of those interesting bits out, Eric. I'll grant that this is anomalous. I don't think we need to dwell on whether or not this era is unusual. Um, there are so many metrics by which it is. But let me ask you to defend the claim that everything's gone nuts because the you know, I recently spoke to James Lindsay on this show. I don't know whether we'll release that before this episode or how it'll come out, but around this time. And James is the kind of person who will articulate a, a worldview in which he's quite convinced that everything has gone truly, truly nuts in a way that is being orchestrated and choreographed by malign forces who are hell-bent on destroying Western civilization. And then on the other end of the spectrum, You'll have your Stephen Pinkers who will say, yeah, this is an anomalous era, but uh, 
on the whole, the people who say that it's gone nuts are people who are spending way too much time online fighting culture wars and that the re- the, the lived reality of most people's lives is that they're living longer and they're freer from life-threatening diseases and, you know, birth problems and all kinds of health issues and malnutrition than they were in the past. And so generally we're kind of chugging along and uh, and doing better than our forebears were. So why do you think things are nuts? Where are you on that spectrum? Well, Pinker is just wrong. Carry on. I mean, he, he claims he's not wrong about this. Let's take no, 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 you know, maternal, not, maternal mortality rates. He's not wrong about that. Grant Pinker every observation that he has, right? He's still wrong. I, I don't even understand people who believe Pinker has a point. Um, well, his point is that if you look at the data that we claim to care about, yeah, like I, I how long granted. people live and how healthy they yeah, are. Yeah, granted. Grant yeah. all of it. Yeah, He's still obviously wrong. And, and this is, you know, if I took a, um, a weight on a spring, simple harmonic oscillator, right? Yeah. And I look at it, it goes at its top and at its bottom as having zero kinetic energy, but either having gravitational potential or string potential, uh, spring potential energy in the system. In the middle, where it would be at rest, it's 100% kinetic energy. It trades off between kinetic and potential energy. But what the good Dr. Pinker is looking at is he's looking at a world awash in potential violence. Right? So effectively, he's looking at a spring in which the kinetic violence is zero or, mm. or very slight or as little as it can be. And he's declared that there's no energy in the system. Well, to be fair to Pinker, I don't think he's making prognostications about how things will be in the next 20 years. He's he's saying as a snapshot now, but he would be... He would be willing to be corrected. So you're 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 basically saying that the events of the of the next twenty years are going to determine whether or not his uh, his factual data driven approach. No, to I don't say anything about are. twenty years. I'm talking about Armageddon, an obvious Armageddon, and this is the problem of Putin and Ukraine, and uh, you know Xi reacting to Nancy Pelosi visiting Taiwan, and uh, the Eco Health Alliance um, really needing to get their grants. Uh, in China to uh, save us from the viruses that they intend to humanize, um, <laughs> make massively deadly. Right, I mean, whether it's twenty years or not, Eric, the, the spring has to the spring has to unload at some point in order for your yeah. optimism to be validated. Right. Yep. What does that look like? It looks like what everybody knows. It looks like, in other words, I, I, I'm making a different point. I, I'm making the point that Pinker's. Pinker's analysis is just trivially wrong. It's not that it's a point. Pinker doesn't have a point. Well, I, 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 well, I don't, I don't want to get, I don't want to get too stuck, too bogged down in. Uh, no, no, like, I appreciate it. What I'm trying to say is, is that his his point would be we all we all always think that everything's going to hell in a handbasket, but when you ask people what going to hell in a handbasket looks like, they give you a bunch of things like political violence, uh, people dying from disease, uh, people dying in childbirth, people not having their rights respected, and so on. And then when you actually look at the the measurement of where those things stand in comparison to history, right. we're Grant doing okay. Right. Now you're yeah. saying <clears throat> that yeah. that is insufficient because, well, you're saying more than it's insufficient. You seem to be saying that's incorrect. But I would, I would, I think you're on strong no, no, ground. I'm, I'm, I'm saying something stronger. 
Right. right I'm trying to say something stronger. I, I think we've got to stop including people as having points who don't have points and then force like <laughs> it, 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 it. Pinker's point to the extent that he has one has been focal for all, all of these discussions. It's like he's hijacked every discussion about what do we do about the obviously terrible situation we're in. And it's like, well, you know, Steven Pinker sees it differently. And I've never heard him not come up. And my, my question is, um, you know, if I were talking about dark matter, right, uh, in physics or dark energy, and somebody said, well, you know, you're aware that uh, Professor Wilczek says it's angels. And every conversation I had to have, have about dark matter we, we spent 45 <laughs> minutes at the beginning discussing whether angels were a viable candidate. It would paralyze all ability to make progress on what is dark matter. Right now, the imperative is we've got Vladimir Putin in Ukraine. We've got Zelensky in Kiev calling for, uh, I'm going to uh, butcher the Slavic language, preventivni udari, preventative strikes. That's pretty good. Okay. That's Spoken as a man who has no understanding of Slavic languages. <laughs> Good on you. So the. Uh, By the way, the, Eric, you sound you're sounding a little bit hot. Do you have a volume knob at your end? Because I can sound, hear you very well, but I'm worried that you're going to sound a little bit distorted when uh, when you're excited. Well, I'll try to calm down. No, you can uh, speak loudly, but I just don't know if you have a an input volume. I don't. Um. I have a mute, unfortunately. This is your software. I don't want to mute. I don't want to mute you. I don't want to mute you. No, 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 no. Go for it. Don't worry about it. People can handle it. Continue. Okay. Continue the thought. Putin. So, you got Putin. You got. Uh, yeah. Zelensky. I think it's extremely important to exclude many perspectives from discussion um, because of their catastrophic effect on the culture of ideas and the ability to use the, you know, intellectual discussion to motivate action that is protective and preventative. The problem with Pinker is that what he's doing is having the effect of making people feel very sophisticated when they become maximally complacent. So it's a first order counterintuitive point. So somebody says, wow, things are really screwed up. And then you have, well, actually, if you look at it, all the major trends point to the fact that things have never been better. And then you have to say, okay, the cost of my making the obvious point about why that is irrelevant is going to be 45 minutes of muddle and it's going to have me as an overbearing voice. Like, who are you to exclude Harvard professor Stephen Binker? Um, I just, I'm, I look at it as simple as Hooke's Law and a weight on a spring and that, that is not a point that should be in, in, in the conversation when we're in an obviously dire situation. All right, let me park the uh, the inevitable and very uh, enticing upcoming jelly wrestling competition between Eric Weinstein and Steven Pinker, which I will uh, moderate at uh, Caesars in Las Vegas. And I think that'll be a world-defining event. You tell me about... Angela. Go ahead. <laughs> you tell me... You tell me about the spring then. Let's forget about how good things are and talk about what the what is the tension in in the spring right now. Well, right now, what you have is the end of the post-World War II era, which was largely bipolar between the U.S. and its sphere of influence and Russia as the Soviet Union and its sphere of influence. 
And the cost of catastrophic technologies like bioweaponry, like um, fission and fusion devices, is going to continue to go down and it's going to spread. And you're going to have a multipolar game theoretic world in which all major human civilizations will be linked by their atmospheres. And the atmospheres carry the three greatest dangers to, to life on this planet, which is um, radiation, uh, pathogen, and climate. And those are the three reasons why libertarianism doesn't make any sense, because there is nowhere to hide from your neighbor's effect on the atmosphere. We have a shared atmosphere and one terrestrial surface, so you can live in different places and have borders, but you can't have your own atmosphere. And those three things, because of our power, the power has gone way up. The destructive power is going to become far more widespread. We have a market that we can't turn off because it basically directs activity that could never be put under central command. And we are not figuring out what is after communism versus capitalism. We are not figuring out what is... Is there a long-term solution to the human condition so that we can regain an indefinite future, which is what we had before catastrophic advances in 1952 and 53? And, you know, I'm tired of hearing myself say this. I say this a lot. I, I would love to talk about all the reasons that I would like to save us and this planet. But until I, it, we are clearly waiting for a very close call that is so dramatic that it shakes us out of our fascination with the Kardashians. Why was COVID not that? Um, because we were cheated of the really interesting story, which is probably where it came from and what the hell was going on in the conflict as to whether or not people had right, sovereign rights over their own body in the face of a public health epidemic. And the origin story of COVID if we had held hearings that were very deep and painful, would have been fascinating. We had uh, American virologists and epidemiologists who were very familiar with the situation at the Wuhan. I mean, think about it from a different point of view. The Wuhan Institute of Virology happened to be right next to the outbreak. And that could have been a very positive thing. You'd have the best virologists in China with its only biosafety level four laboratory right on top of wherever this thing came from. So we should have had an amazing uh, scientific whodunit where we tried to figure out where it came from. And instead we immediately decided that it was absolutely 100% pure positive um, that it came from a, a zoonotic origin and, and likely only the wet market down the road. And anybody who questioned that was a racist. And that was backed up by, I don't know, 60 Nobel Prize winners and The Lancet, you know, one of the most respected journals of all time. So that really killed, um, it, it forced us all into this very bizarre paradigm of, are you a lunatic who believes in anti-vax ideology or are you a lunatic who believes in the perfect benevolence of the government and the coincidence that... Uh, the virus came out of Wuhan right next to the lab and that we happened to have a, an organization in the U.S. where a zoologist happened to get $50 million in funding uh, to study exactly such things like putting furin cleavage sites into coronaviruses. I mean, 
everybody became a crank. You were either a pro-government, pro-establishment, pro-medicine crank, or you were an anti-government, anti-establishment, anti-medicine crank. And that completely enervated us, Mm. right? I mean, my worry is that that trend, that extremification is happening across so many different dynamics at the moment in culture. I mean, part of the what part of what I'm trying to do with this podcast and with all of my all of my media existence, and I think part of what you were doing with your podcast in 2019 and 2020, the portal, which I loved and I miss, uh, is an, an attempt to have conversations that lie in the no man's land between those two phony binaries that people expect us to reside inside of. But every other Every other instinct and every other trend and every other incentive seems aligned at the moment. And I don't know whether this is driven by social media, whether this is driven by the sort of stratification and self-sorting of classes and ideologies in society. I don't know what to blame it on, but it does seem that there are incentives for people to fall in line with their cohort and become less and less curious about the messy no man's land in between those two ideas what what's going on there uh we're destroying everyone who takes an interest right raising the cost of taking an interest in not in not playing the binary game i mean everyone who's actually trying to figure out what's going on is under some form of relentless attack hmm from both sides? Nope. No, no, no. I, I think that what we have, look, look, let's take a very simple one, right? Well, no, let's, let's go a little bit more abstract. We know that we have a problem that any time the intelligence community or the State Department in the United States is involved, with a story that gets out of hand, there's an issue called sources and methods. What happens when you take an interest in something that turns out to be the Iran-Contra affair? Right? Um, you know, some, some crazy story where the government is involved in selling drugs and, and arms and uh, hostile regimes and, and, and some, you know, death squads. And the officialdom, the statecraft, wants to claim privilege by saying sources and methods cannot be discussed. Well, what if the COVID virus involves sources and methods? What happens if you take an interest? What happens if you say, look, I, I want to talk about the furin cleavage site. Um, we have four nucleotides. The odds of a transposition um, you know, of these four nucleotides in those locations is you know, one in some ungodly large number. Um, we do note that the that proposals like inserting a furin cleavage site um, to increase the virality uh, of a um, of a coronavirus, you know, was discussed previously. I have this very strong sense that we know the answer is don't ask those questions. Mm. Right, and, and and then we have this very weird thing with we have the Fauci Collins emails, and we have this reference to three epidemiologists at Stanford, Harvard, and Oxford, which are 
last time I checked, relatively establishment organizations that these are fringe epidemiologists. I just spent some time with Jay Bhattacharya at Stanford. And you could disagree with him. You could, you could take issue with him. But he's hardly a fringe a professor of epidemiology at Stanford. is not a fringe epidemiologist. You know, you're seeing in the emails that call for a swift and devastating takedown of these positions, the orchestration of professional destruction. And we've now just uncovered um, at the Department of Homeland Security that they have a program for pre-bunking malinformation, where malinformation is truth. It's truth that's destructive. And they can pre-bunk it by inoculating people to not believe true information that they view to be destructive. So my feeling about this is always look where people are artificially incurious. And I've called this some, something that has this characteristic anti-interesting. Something is anti-interesting if it involves sex and drugs and power and corruption and abuse and nobody wants to look at it. Because people would always want to look at those things. So, in general, we know Jeffrey Epstein is incredibly anti-interesting to our press. <laughs> our press right. is so uninterested in Jeffrey Epstein. And, and I've, I've spoken to reporters who, who put together these stories, and then their editors tell them, nobody knows who that is, nobody cares who that is, it's water under the bridge, you're beating a dead horse. And it's like... If, if you put out anything on Jeffrey Epstein, the world will retweet you, you know, to high heaven. Mm. It, well, it, I don't know what journalists you're surrounding yourself with, Eric, but but let me articulate a, a problem that I think is part of this, coming from the perspective of someone who works inside journalism, uh, mainstream journalism, that there is a there's an area that falls short of fact, verifiable fact, that is a space that you love playing in that is difficult for journalism as it's currently constituted to explore because, you know, I know that there's a lot of criticism of journalists, but I'm, when I talk about old school, traditional kind of Cronkite inherit, you know, descendants <laughs> of the Cronkite <laughs> legacy, you know, and you, you can laugh, but there are, but places like where I work at the Australian Broadcasting Corporation sure. and, and places like I would still include for all of its faults on its op-ed page, places like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, uh, where you need to have at least three sources. And if you come back with two and a half kind of sources, your editor is going to kick you in the ass and go, go back. I need more. We haven't got it yet. We haven't got the story yet. Uh, and you will go digging and digging and digging and you will take, you know, you have to be able to take it to the bank. And there are procedures, layers of editorial verification. This doesn't mean that things, that mistakes don't get made. This doesn't mean that the editorial point of view isn't skewed towards a certain bias. You're always making decisions about what is newsworthy and what is not. And those are reflections of your own worldview. Uh, nonetheless, things have to cross a certain threshold in order to get on the front page of the New York Times. And, you know, when they fuck up, they then have to own it. This is not Mike Cernovich just tweeting something. Uh, this is a, a publication that has systems in place to hold themselves to a certain standard. And so exploring the question of Jeffrey Epstein beyond what's provable, exploring the origins of the coronavirus beyond what 
the World Health Organization and the Communist Party in Beijing will allow you to explore or to verify becomes this really tricky zone. And the liability of having your level of curiosity as a widespread thing, I mean, you can cope with it because you're a fucking genius, but if we were to extrapolate your level of curiosity and skepticism to the population at large... Josh. My concern as a gatekeeper would be that we would live in a fucking miasma Josh. of total chaos and conspiracy thinking. I, I really appreciate that. It's also not true. If you simply took the angle, um, why are we not holding hearings into the EcoHealth Alliance and its role in Wuhan, China? Like, in other words, the story isn't the coronavirus origin. Why are we not holding hearings into Peter Daszak, um, Ralph Barrick, uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, the Defense uh, Defense Threat Reduction Agency, DITRA. Um, you could just do a story on that. You could right. do a story on um, where are the where are the records of Jeffrey Epstein's multi billion dollar currency trading hedge fund? He assured me that he was a currency trader when I met him one time. Okay. Mm that he had an enormous hedge fund. He'd just been doing some currency trading when, when he came into the meeting. No one I know seems to have traded with him. Nobody knows who his prime broker was, and there is no way of faking a multi-billion dollar currency trading hedge fund um, because the tick data is available historically. So just ask the question, where is the data? Where are the SEC filings? Where is, where is the official interaction with the outside world? Um, and print whatever hap- you know. Print whatever comes back, including somebody saying no comment or um, that's classified. My, my point is, we're having that conversation. It's similar to the Steven Pinker conversation. I'm now defending the idea that this is trivially easy. It's trivially easy. All you need to do is to ask questions to people on the record and get a no comment. That's a news. That's a news item. Mm. Not very, good news. Epstein, not, very, not a very sexy news item, and it doesn't last for oh, really? long. I'll take Try this point. one. Is Jeffrey Epstein, uh, was Jeffrey Epstein known to be connected to any intelligence community, um, and was the federal government interested uh, in monitoring his activities, or did he somehow slip completely below the radar? So the story becomes the federal government denies that there was any relationship between its intelligence services and Jeffrey Epstein. That's one possibility. The federal government refuses to comment, uh, citing sources and methods. Uh, The federal government agrees that it had a massive intelligence failure, that it could not um, detect a massive trafficking operation of 12-year-old girls, um, indicating that we need to somehow have a better uh, alert system. I mean, in no, there's no non-interesting story that just begins with saying, why is there no story? There's no non-interesting story that begins with saying, why isn't there a story? Right. If, if I have too many negatives there. Uh, sorry, it's the dog that didn't bark problem. Right. Okay. So the question is, you know, maybe it takes three sources on the record, blah, 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 to confirm something that you'd like. Well, don't begin there. Begin with the question of why are the dogs not barking? Hmm. What what is causing the the just ask the questions and record the answers? If the answer is no comment, that's fascinating. 
I guarantee you can sell papers by saying we asked well, uh, why there were no hearings into the EcoHealth Alliance's activities in Wuhan, China. And we were told, um, you know, uh, that was privileged or there is no comment or. It, journalism has disappeared. Yeah, and you could see this, for example, with the bombing of the federal courthouse in Portland, Oregon. Um, it was denied, I think, by Jerry Nadler that there was an Antifa, you know, firebombing of the courthouse. This was during the the protests. Was this in twenty twenty? Yeah, I, I, th I think so. I mean, everything's yeah, running together. The, yeah, yeah. But during the the protests that were initially sparked by the George well, Floyd murder, the protests. You know, the, the 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 famous line inside the U.S. is mostly peaceful. It's like <laughs> nobody cares mostly about the mostly peaceful. <laughs> right. You know, it's just, just explain that to people who who didn't who don't know that meme. Well, you're you're looking at footage of businesses burning to the ground, and people are saying, "Oh, you know." Perhaps there was some excessive enthusiasm. People have been cooped up for a long time. Mostly it was, peaceful. It was riots, man. And there was one. Uh, it was one notorious CNN thing where, like the yeah, the the reporter is standing in front of like burning buildings and people smashing each other in the face and everything. And yeah. the crawl, the crawl across the bottom of the screens is uh, mostly peaceful protests as people are getting. Well, curiosity warm. has become a crime, right? And my point is, I I don't know that Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. I don't know that this virus didn't come from a pangolin. I don't know that Jeffrey Epstein didn't run a currency trading hedge fund. I don't know that, um, I, there's lots of stuff I don't know. I do know that the reporting is as bizarre as we've ever seen in the history of journalism. It's like forced in curiosity at a level where we can't even ask where is the story. So I wonder, I think that makes me think about something you said earlier about not reading sure. books and you not appreciating music the same way in the sense that we don't spend time wasting time anymore. And it's possible that all of this has a similar cause and that the cause is less about institutions, which I know <clears throat> you frequently attribute it to, and more about our attention. I mean, I know a lot of journalists who just spend a lot of time churning through the hamster wheel of stories that are in front of them. And I know a lot of people who relate to their lives that way and to the input of what's going on in the world, scrolling through their feed, yeah. chatting about the same kinds of things. Okay not having the scope to just be bored and Josh, noodle on curious questions. I appreciate all of these things. I want you to take everything that you can possibly come up with that would enervate the allegation that I'm making. Okay. So maybe we're bored. We don't have the attention spans. Maybe the idea is um, that there's a lot of emergence and we're only now noticing it because we have phones. And so there's a lot more coincidence to be explained. Let, let, let's just come up with you know, just like with Steven Pinker, come up with the giant list of explanations that don't have to do with something that's actually really disturbing. You could still look at any one of these things. If I look at only the reporters who come and contact me, who try to get information about a story, 
And then they spend three weeks on the story and they're putting it together. This is incredible. This is amazing. Why has nobody ever covered this? And I'm like, I'm telling you where this is going. You're about to have a conversation with your editor. And your editor is about to tell you, sorry, nobody cares. Nobody's interested. Uh, not enough on it. I'm putting you on this other story that's really important. I'm just thinking, I can set my clock to this. I, for example, happen to know, soup to nuts, what happened to pass the Immigration Act of 1990 with its infamous H-1B program, which keep in mind that there is no such thing as a long-term labor shortage in a market economy because the wage mechanism always uh, find, finds the equilibrium. I have a Steinway shortage in my living room only because I'm not willing to pay for one. <laughs> right? There's a Lamborghini shortage in my garage. I have one of those too. Yeah. Brother, we should, we should drink and commiserate. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, okay. I have a good Scotch shortage as well. <laughs> we have a... There's no shortage of articles on labor shortages, but it's not a, it's not a feature of, of market economics, right? So you have a completely fictitious concept, which is long-term labor shortages. You have changes in law, and every reporter who ever gets at this um, you know, runs all this stuff down, and they get to the editorial level, and the editor, editor says, I'm sorry, we can't, run, we can't run this because of X, Y, Z, P, or Q. Look at the Amy Robach uh, hot mic thing where she's saying that she had all of the sources and all of the data on the Jeffrey Epstein thing. What you're doing is you're doing the same thing Pinker is doing. You're enervating your audience. You know, Eric, couldn't it be? And it's like, no, it isn't. We, we, we know that nobody's really asking these questions. And by nobody, I mean there's no reporter, editor, paper unit that's able to break these stories, including stories that indicate that Jeffrey Epstein really killed himself, that the coronavirus came from a pangolin having sex with a bat and, uh, you know, whatever else. But we're not asking the questions. And that the message of this, Josh, and this is really important, is don't be curious. Well, now I'm curious about how a pangolin has sex with a bat, and I want to Did see you visualize that. it. I want to see that as the sequel sure. to the Stephen Pinker, Eric Weinstein jelly wrestling competition uh, in Las Vegas. I mean, that look, everything you say makes sense, and I don't want to be the guy who's always going, "Yeah, but, 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 but." But you are. But this over here, and this over here. But you are, and because we're all doing it, it's not you, Josh. But the, I mean, I'll cop, I'll cop to it to the extent that it's somehow more parsimonious as an explanation. There's an, there's an Occam's razor, like neatness, to my explanation in a strange way, which is that human beings are groupthinky mammals who aren't very good at alienating their cohort in right. the pursuit of truth. I know. And that is just simpler than, I'm not sure what the thesis that you're making is, that editors would be actually getting instructions from on high about well, avoiding certain stories. Is there a liaison at the New York Times, for example, that has a direct line to the Department of Homeland Security and the intelligence community 
where they say, hey, we're, uh, we're understanding that you may be running down a story with the following features. We need you to hold off. Is that a thing that exists? I mean, yes, and the history of the way that that thing gets used is instructive as well. I mean, we, so, you know, people who've left the Times and who have left these organizations will tell tell us thrilling stories about how they're about to publish something. They get a call. I mean, I'm thinking specifically of, uh, I can't remember what it was in the lead up to the Iraq war or just after the Iraq war, but Cheney's office was basically pressuring the Times and was in a negotiation about what can be published when and the times was like we're gonna we're gonna publish this and the white house was like just give us a day to get people out and give us a day to like get our ducks in a row and there was a willingness on the part of the times to accommodate those requests so it's not like you need to be not in contact in order to first of all nonetheless defiant is that well known to the public like in other words Let's imagine you just had aggregate statistics, which is we feel that the following large number of requests, there was an uptick in the number of requests not to publish things. Well, you know, let's just take Cassus Belli, right? We are pretty sure that the McCollum memo predated the attack on Pearl Harbor, which said that we could enter World War II if we could get the Japanese to attack us by starving them for resources. Now, I'm not saying that that's what caused the attack on Pearl Harbor, but it's very clear that we were interested in getting into World War II by getting our nose bloodied. Yeah. Uh, we had similar issues with the Gulf of Tonkin. Remember the Maine uh, from a different era? Uh, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. So in general, we have a history of statecraft in which it's very important that we have a reason to enter because we're the big dogs, right? If we just went in and said, hey, that's a lot of oil and we're interested in it, it wouldn't, wouldn't be good. So am I opposed to statecraft? No. I understand that you know countries have interests and that those interests are sometimes somewhat unsavory. What I'm trying to say is the level of contamination of our own news with respect to things like sources and methods is now through the roof. We don't even know what's happening in our own lives because the people who are supposed to in some sense, keep the intelligence community away from us. Um, We're not supposed to stumble on things that we're not supposed to know about. And it's also the case that you can't take over every aspect of our lives. What did I breathe into my lungs? Have you had COVID? Yeah. Okay. Was that part of a workaround to get around the Biological Weapons Convention passed in the 1970s along with the Geneva Convention? It was in my lungs. I want to know what was in my lungs. If you screwed up, let me even grant, for example, that maybe we had a reason to use a hippie charity with a bizarrely high-powered board and a zoologist who gets nothing but money from from the Defense Department to, to, to protect all our health. Let's assume for, that it was a legitimate workaround that we don't understand for the Biological Weapons uh, Convention. When that virus gets loose to the entire planet and it kills your grandfather and you can't go to his funeral, you've lost the right to say sources and methods, right? Because the the screw up on the workaround, if that's a biological weapons program, which has now gone defensive because we've forsworn the ability to have an offensive program, when you screw up, you lose the right to quote sources and methods. 
But who is quoting sources and methods on the basis of the claim that the that COVID was a biological weapon? I mean, I don't hear I'm anybody asking, responding to I hear almost no one asking the question. What happened when we passed the Geneva and Biological Weapons Conventions with respect to a workaround to make sure that we were not unprepared for an adversary like the Soviets who had advanced biological weapons capabilities? Like it would be it would be horrible if we just decided that we were going to play be Boy Scouts and play by the letter of the law and just say, okay, we're not going to do any bioweapons research. What we did, I think, is that we did, did defensive research, and defensive and offensive are sort of one click away from each other. They're adjacent. So I want to know, when you screw up and when you have a spillover event that shuts down the world for two years, and you kill, you know, I don't know, 20 million people, why do you continue to get to not hold hearings? I just don't understand it. Like, you're after the fact, you've lost your program, if that's what it is. And if that's what it isn't, why aren't we asking questions about it? What role do you think that the, I suppose, what we used to call intellectual dark web and now we might call the dissident uh, intellectual players at the edge of uh, the mainstream are playing and will play in helping us get to the truth i, I mean are you torn b- between the are you torn about the 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 risks of a chaotic conspiratorial worldview as much as you're exercised by the risks of it's a, it's in, the institutionalization question. of our thinking i don't want to see conspiracy conspiracy theories that are bad like bad conspiracy theorists run riot like QAnon is certainly very dangerous um but the problem is, is that the world is filled with false conspiracy narratives and true conspiracy narratives. Some of the true ones we shouldn't know about because they would, you know, like you, you don't want to know why are so many Americans um, uh, close to the beaches of Normandy before D-Day. It would be really, that was, you know, D-Day was a conspiracy. Uh, it was very important that we not um reveal that conspiracy so there are times when you need to hold a conspiracy back the problem that we're having is we have a completely unsustainable claim which is that the world is effectively free of conspiracies and that they all require completely extraordinary proof when it's very evident that conspiracies are kind of mundane they're everywhere they're yeah but that's a straw man claim, surely, Eric. I don't know anyone who says that the world is free of conspiracies unless they're a completely oh, that's cynical. That's an interesting guy. point. I don't think so because when I when somebody says, "Well, you're a conspiracy theorist," I would say, um, "Aren't you?" And say, no, <laughs> and I say, "Oh, well, did you believe in the Russian collusion narrative with the respect?" Yeah, to- well, I, mean, that I is- think that's that's a that is a it's a let's avoid that term because it's a silly term, conspiracy theorist. As you say, oh, very we well, will, we'll believe in certain conspiracies. Right. But like, it's for example, I have no idea whether the vaccines were really a great thing or really a terrible thing. I just don't know, and I don't know what the real origin of COVID was. So. In all of these circumstances, what you're looking to do is to decrease the scope for speculation by giving people real insight. You know, I, I grew up with Watergate hearings, hearings into the of the Church and Pike committees into evil doings by the uh, FBI through dirty tricks campaigns, Iran Contra hearings. Um, there was the Silkwood case. 
We investigated power. We're not doing that now. And you know, I, I'd like to get off this so we can get up to mm. other topics. But mm. Josh, the, the really important point is I want you just to notice that it's a no-win situation. I don't want to talk conspiracy. I don't. I, my thing is hearings. Just give me data and information to fill the void so that we don't have like a God of the gaps problem. This is sort of the conspiracy of the gaps problem. Yeah. We keep leaving massive gaps, which is an invitation to say, you know, what the hell's going on? If I can't call a radical mastectomy being pushed on little girls uh, a radical mastectomy and they have to, I have to say top surgery and I have to celebrate it, uh, that's so unnatural. There's another term now. I heard John Oliver use it, or maybe it was John Stewart. I think it was John Oliver. Not, it's not even top surgery. It's chest uh, construction or uh, chest rea- chest affirmation or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was talking with a trans man who was an acquaintance of mine the other day who has a, a, a bushy beard that I could only dream of. <laughs> and his point was, I don't want people following me into this life who don't need to be here. Right? Mm. And it was breaking his heart that the tiny cohort of people who actually have these radical, um, you know, dichotomies between what their mind says and what their chromosomes tell them. Uh, look, this is coming for our families. It's madness. I just heard about the QAnon mass delusion on national public radio inside of the U.S., and we need to talk about the trans mass delusion. We need to talk about the Trump mass delusion, but also, you, you know, the um, the Epstein mass delusion. We're talking about so many mass delusions that we're not fully human beings anymore. And what I'm advocating is that you take that urge to say, isn't it just coincidence? Isn't it just emergent? Isn't it just, isn't it just, isn't it just? Give it a year off. And say, I mean, instead, Eric, you, wait, wait, you one also, second. Well, one yep. second. Give it a year off and instead say, why don't we have more primary data to plug the gaps so that we don't need to speculate like this? This is ridiculous. You're making it sound like I'm more comfortable with my worldview than yours. In actual fact, I would be more, I would find it more reassuring if there was. A, a more concrete villain. Like I actually find it, I find my worldview more, f- more portentous and <laughs> full of foreboding than yours in the sense that mine is more, uh, mine is diffi- more difficult to fix. I think, I mean, if, if this is all a problem of human psychology, tribalism and the interplay between social media, digital technology, the hive mind, uh, and human biases, then I don't know how to fix it. If it's a problem of the editor of the New York Times is too chummy with the director of Homeland Security, then we have a we have a potential fix. Good news. Go on. Um, it's a mixture of the two, but the component that's due to orchestration is almost certainly far, far uh, larger than we are allowed to discuss in, pri- in polite company. I mean, I, I have enough information from private sources to say, uh, and everything from 
UFOs to the gate to the gauge of inflation. Uh, people behind the scenes, come on, Eric. You, you know this is a public secret that we use the CPI to uh, raise taxes and slash benefits. <laughs> yes, and the way they calculate the CPI is uh, is rigged in that as well. But that is an open secret. That, yeah. But- okay. Well, but but when I bring that up. I mean, I've done real work in CPI construction. Mm-hmm. My real work can't be acknowledged because this is a secret tax and uh, and, and, and benefit slashing mechanism. So for people who don't know what we're talking about, when the government uh, calculates what, infl- what the rate of inflation is, there are various different baskets of goods that it can look at to try to figure out what inflation is. Some of them will yield higher inflation numbers, some lower inflation numbers, and because many of the things that the government spends money on will be pegged to inflation, it's in their interest to keep those expenditures under control by lowballing inflation for some purposes and highballing it for other purposes. So there's some some game playing that goes on at the edges there. But uh, I mean, the fact that- are you trying to seduce me? <laughs> You're not wearing any pants, so that's. <laughs> uh, but that's a uh, just before we get off COVID. But when you were talking there, I was reminded of of the. The conversation. Just, I want to put a button in this conversation about conspiracy theories versus not conspiracy theories. What's your? I haven't heard you talk about what your brother's role has been in in COVID. Is that? Are you proud of his of what he's been doing? Um, I try to stay silent about it. Uh, let Let me say some things that will allow people to understand. I try not to give legal, financial, or medical advice on the internet. And why? If you've heard my take, it's that I believe that he has misstructured his point. I also think the world of Brett, I think he's a person of tremendous integrity. I think he has a great deal of biological insight. Um, and it's, this has been an extremely difficult period where I've been relatively silent. Um, but my feeling about this is... What we needed was information. This is something I can say more more generally about what you've said about the historic IDW. Hmm. Heterodoxy is not capable of taking over from the orthodoxy. You cannot ask a bunch of ragtag public intellectuals to explain the world to you if they're starved of information. And what Brett needed... And what we all needed was not to be playing detective work. We needed to be the PhDs in the room who are, you know, very often the White House will bring in influencers because they want to get a message out to the country. Mm. Well, why not bring in the PhDs? Oh, we can't have the PhDs in the room. We're we're, we're doing a vaccine rollout, so let's get a bunch of Instagram models uh, and give them some swag and, and a tour of the West Wing and shake the hand of the president, maybe. Um, But we don't want the PhDs in the room. Brett needed information that he didn't have. And my feeling is it was a no-win situation, and he chose one of the no-win paths. I chose a different one. I I am vaccinated. I've even boosted. Uh, I'm not sure if I did the right thing. I do not know because there was no way to know what was actually going on. And if you take, for example, the issue of therapeutics, 
Washington, D.C. has a workaround culture. Let's imagine, for example, that you say we've got to get these vaccines out, but we've got this pesky little thing that we don't have enough time to get uh, good data on their effects. So we'll use the emergency use. And somebody will say, well, we can't use emergency use because if there are any therapeutics, you can't use it. Okay, let's just make sure there aren't any therapeutics, and that way we'll work around the EUA restrictions. That's normal to people who live in Washington. In other words, it's a lie. <laughs> it's fake. It's, it's a conspiracy. It's convoluted. It may be disastrous, but it's also normal to them. Oh, wait, I have being, no idea what you're talking about there. You oh, can't use a therapeutic if the vaccine was emergency right, authorized? You can't use a vaccine if therapeutics are available. Oh, I see. Right. So it's so like, a way of, of fixing the, uh, the disease once you get it, then you can't experimentally use a vaccine to prevent right. you from like, the Right. In other words, you disease. should only have an experimental uh, remedy if there are no normal remedies available. Got it. Right. So, so that you might, you so, provides a disincentive to, to, to so test typical, therapeutics. Typical way a workaround culture works is that somebody will say, okay, well, we've got to make sure that there are no therapeutics. And then you'd have a campaign, which is like, you don't want to take horse dewormer. Now, I do see. I know that ivermectin works or didn't work or how well it worked? I mean, I couldn't tell. I thought it was very strange to hear that it was a perfect therapeutic or prophylactic, um, which I don't think that it is. And But, you know, in essence, I think that when non-Washington people encounter Washington workaround culture, particularly if they're of a scientific or rational or first principles bent, they have an idea of like, you sons of bitches are lying. And Washington right. is like, wow, drama queen much? Right. And th those two cultures, it's like the science versus science. When, when, when Fauci says you have to trust the science or I am the science, it's this unholy fusion of public health, science, and public policy, which is in part meant to deceive. And if you look mm. at the literature in public health, you know, there's a lot of stuff around the noble lie. And so you get a bunch of people who are not party to the, no the culture of the noble lie or the workaround. And are like, well, why are you all lying? This must mean you know something horrible. Now, I've I spent time in Washington so that, you know, I, I'm, I'm aware that people in Washington think that a behavior is normal, which I think is, you know, pretty close to evil. Yeah. I mean, I've spent a lot of time in newsrooms where the same group think happens, uh, you know, like how you get to the demonization of ivermectin so early. And I, you know, I'm, a, I'm off the ivermectin train completely. I don't think there's any good evidence anymore that it works. But at the time, there was Were no you on it? doubt. Well, I was on the, uh, why are we call? Yes, I mean, I was, I was, I was anti-calling it horse dewormer or whatever they were calling it. You know, right. I was like, this is something that hundreds of millions of people take safely around the world. <laughs> So, I mean, why wouldn't you throw, in the early days of COVID, why wouldn't you throw everything at it that you can? Why are we demonizing people who are speculating about this? Uh, so I, so that was enough to get me on the crank I side of, you know, the equation because I wasn't enthusiastically pillorying everyone who wanted to try it before we had any good data about whether it worked. And that right. group think is the kind of it what happens, Eric, is that you're sitting in a pitch meeting and you raise 
something. I mean, this happened recently with transgen with a transgender story, where in the UK, the Tavistock Clinic, their biggest gender clinic, was closed, was shut down after a damning inquiry. And I pitched this as a story to do. And there's just that four-second awkward silence as the producers sit there looking at you, going, hmm, I don't really see it. Like, how do you do it exactly? Right. How do you avoid the backlash? How do you not right. sound like you're a bigot? How do we shore ourselves up against, you know, the perception thing? Do we want to be on the side of these far-right assholes who are passing anti-trans bills? And all of that stuff is flooding through their heads. Right. And that's the roadblock as much as anything. It, it's a it's the ocean that we're swimming in. It's the, sure. you know, the water that we're breathing, so to speak. Well, but that that's why... You know, like, I'm pretty sure that officialdom lied about the origins of COVID, which is that anybody who, who thinks it had a synthetic origin in any, of any kind must be a racist. That's clearly a wrong idea. What I don't know about is whether we were lied to about the vaccines for our own benefit, because we really needed them in our most vulnerable, or whether we were lied to about the vaccines uh, for other reasons that are more nefarious. I just don't, I, I, Eric literally don't know. And I mean, I'm I, confident that it was the former because I know at least in a place like Australia, because I have enough connections with, for example, the health minister where people were really, really, really committed to getting up to what the epidemiologists were saying was a, a take it to the bank level of vaccination before opening the international borders and allowing everybody to go, go out and get COVID. Uh, and that was seen as the priority. And any narrative that diverged from that? Australia is very different. Downplayed. Well, Australia, Australians seem to have a much higher level of trust with their government. Um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I'm actually right. just writing a piece about this for an American publication, trying so, to explain yeah. that curious phenomenon. Well, it, it is curious. Um, and I think that Australia's, for example, had a very different experience with immigration and uh, modernization, which we could talk about at another time. Yeah. But w what, I, what I don't understand is for example, the need to push the vaccines on the people who seemed least vulnerable. If you know something about the virus that the rest of us don't, it could be that the, vi that the vaccine actually carried a cost, uh, as we saw, may have included myocarditis, and, but it, the idea is that it might have been um, you know, the lesser of two evils. I have no idea. What, what, what bothers me about this is just keeping the option open to say, isn't it weird that we don't have better information? Isn't it weird that China doesn't seem to want us to know what's going on? Isn't it weird that we don't hold hearings? That thing has become tantamount to some sort of weird right-wing pro-Trump mm. um, madness. And as a guy who would never vote for Trump under any circumstance I can imagine, um, my feeling is this all comes down to your level of disagreeability. Jordan Peterson over dinner once said to me, he said, Eric, what's bizarre about you is that you combine two traits, trait openness and trait disagreeability. And he said, you may be the, you, you may be the most disagreeable person I've ever met. And I think it's very important. That's a that great compliment. Well, I don't know. It's not so fun at parties at times. But, <laughs> but the issue being that um, – you have to be, if you're going to be a real journalist, you have to think about how you're going to tell a hundred people in the room that they're wrong 
And every time we do this, we get called arrogant. In other words, when one person says, I've listened to all of you, and I'm convinced that you're all wrong, that comes out as like, you know, either tall poppy syndrome, or what is that guy's attitude problem, or arrogance, et cetera, or why aren't you a team player? And my feeling is, which part of journalism didn't you understand? Mm. Ultimately, it's about huevos. And the great thing about the word huevos is that it works in Spanish to mean uh, eggs. Yeah. Uh, right? So whether it's balls. Connection. Oh, yeah. It, whether it's balls or your ovaries. <laughs> okay. uh, we, need, we need reporters who are not out to destroy individuals, but who have the huevos to disagree with 10,000 people where they're the only one who holds their position. If you yeah. don't have that character trait, there's so many other professions that you may be very much better suited to. Well, and the media is attracting people who don't have that character trait because it's attracting people who want to be part of a club. Um, and that you know your your articulation of that concern about being lumped in with a Trump voter is really like that. That's keenly observed. I mean, that What's is the bitch? that is the mo- the main thing I think that's impeding. Yeah, that's impeding all of this. The fear Let's get that you. Let's yeah. get to something sunnier because, like, I really enjoy you. And yeah, yeah. I, I, this is just, uh, it's, I'm too, tired. it's too relentlessly I'm, bleak. Well, I'm, I'm no, it's you. just, it's not bleak. It's just that I need company. I need, I need hundreds of people who are echoing the same things. To hear one person saying it, it starts to sound like he's a lunatic. And the thing is, <laughs> all I am is disagreeable. And it's not even arrogance. It's just like, I want my children to survive, get the hell away from this propaganda stuff, give me the information that we need and let the heterodox uh, correct the orthodoxy so that we can all get on with our lives. But that's not happening. Yeah. What are you most excited about? Mm, It's a good question. Um, I guess I'm most excited about what I think is about to happen in um, testing the possibility of uh, interplanetary and interstellar travel. Mm. I think that we've been stagnant for so many years in physics that um, we've forgotten how much a tiny physical discovery can change the world. So semiconductors is an easy one or, you know, uh, telecommunications with the electromagnetic radiation. Anytime physics moves, uh, the world is transformed. And I think we're due for the demise of the baby boomer string juggernaut, which has basically stalled all physical progress at our deepest level with something called quantum gravity, which doesn't work. And I think that, uh, you know, I've famously apologized to the UFO community, who I thought were a bunch of lunatics. And, um, I don't know, um, people who were caught up in a mass delusion. And then I'm more and more convinced that something profound is happening in that sector. And that could be um, horribly a psychological operation, the likes of which we've never seen because it involves so many people in so many years. Or it could be something really profound. And I think that we've just gotten divorced from understanding how much can change. And I, I give this example recently that there were people who fought in the Civil War who lived to see a thermonuclear weapon uh, exploded in the Pacific. Mm. And 
you know, that's pretty disturbing. But the rate of change when something moves in physics is incalculable. Yeah. If you think about powered flight in like 1902 and then 1903, somewhere around there. And then we actually have a, a photograph from the surface of Titan, which is this moon of Saturn that was beamed back. Yeah. Right. Within a hundred years or something. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's like unbelievably or around a hundred years. The, the idea that things can move has been forgotten. I think that the distance between 1902 and 1952 is like 10,000 years. And I think the difference between 1973 and the present is like one or two years. Yeah. I mean, the my grandma was born in 1915 during the Gallipoli campaign. Oh, wow. And yeah, uh, and she died on the eve of her 100th birthday in 2015. And I was coming back to the States uh, through Greece of all places, I was visiting a friend, a buddy of mine who, who was living in Athens and uh, I came back and I did uh, Joe Rogan's show after getting back to the States. And I relayed this story to him about how I'm wandering around the, uh, the, the Athenian Agora, you know, the birthplace of democracy where people sure. first started coming together and realizing that they should hammer out their differences by talking to one another instead of slaughtering each other. And, uh, and I, I'm beholding the sheer age of this thing, 4,000 years, 4,000 years. And then I think, well, my Nana just lived a hundred, right? So if you put my Nana back what to back, a hundred. what a hundred, it's only actually 40 of my grandmother's lifespans that takes yeah. you back to the birthplace of democracy. It's only 20 that gets you back to Jesus Christ. You know, I know. It's only a handful that it's only a couple that gets you back to the enlightenment right. and everything is so has been accelerating so quickly. And as you say, what a hundred, I mean, starting from 1915 and going <laughs> through the space age, the development oh of I mean, the, the automobile becoming widespread when she was a little girl, they would remark on the car going past the town car, you know, Oh, there's the car. <laughs> there's the guy who has the car. The, the antib antibiotics <laughs> and frozen food. I mean, it, it's just mind-boggling. And you so know, what what is next? Because what normally when I ask people with gigantic universe-sized brains, what's next? They talk about something to do with what you started out talking this conversation about, which is the interface between technology and the human mind, mm -hmm. and you know, the know. singularity or blah blah. But you're yeah, going to planet. It's because it's because that. Because they're being pussies. I mean, look, <laughs> we have to get out of here. We have to spread out. The, the, the challenge of our era, with all of this crazy technology that we have that's so destructive, is that we've got to find multiple worlds so that if we lose one, we're not all the eggs in one basket. You know, and, and like, just take what you said about... Um, you know that lyric from that song, uh, year after year, more old men disappear till there's no one to march anymore? Yeah, yeah. Right? So The band played Waltzing Matilda, classic right. Australian song. Well, I try, I try to be sensitive to my audience. Um, <laughs> this issue of forgetting is important. Gallipoli doesn't carry the same punch today as it did because of the twilight of living memory. 
And there are now only eight particle theorists who walk the earth who have been recognized by Stockholm as having contributed to our notion of reality. Um, and they're all over 70 and all the work is 49 years old or older. There are only four people to have walked on the moon still alive. Right? So in part, we're in this process of gallipolizing a lot. And mm. there's a lot we can forget that we need to forget. But one of the things that we've forgotten is how, how dramatically everything can change and how, how much we need to separate. I need to not be on the same planet as Xi, Putin, Biden, Kim, <laughs> and Trump. No, no, it's incredibly important to me. I've never met any of these people. Yeah. I don't care about what they think. They don't seem to be distinguished intellects. It's not a question of capitalism versus communism or totalitarianism versus freedom. It's like we don't even understand what's going on in Lugansk. Have you ever been to Lugansk? Have you ever nope. cared about the Donbass or Donetsk? I mean, what we're talking about is Armageddon over nothing. And the thing that I'm excited about is the only thing that's really holding us here is Einstein. And I want to go beyond Einstein because Einstein has only been for 100 plus years. It's a restriction on what is easy to do. Before, in the Newtonian time, you could dream of reaching the stars. In the Einsteinian time, I believe if you take man's top speed ever achieved, it would take us, what is it, over 100,000 years to reach the nearest neighboring star? It, it, it's like we're really far from everything. Mm. And what I think is, is that there's a hope that if we can just make progress in theoretical physics, get back to basics and do science, we can potentially do to Einstein what Einstein did to Newton. And that's what I'd spend my time on is, is that I want to give those of us who want to stay here the option to stay here. But the idea that we can only go to the moon or Mars is so enervating. It's so depressing. I mean, I, I appreciate that Elon has pioneered this, discussing this in polite company. But right now, we need thousands and thousands of different experiments because the odds that we're going to screw this one up are extraordinary. Um, and this is why Steven Pinker is, you know, I need to win him over in this <laughs> Jello wrestling match um, because he's enervating people from doing right now. This is the time to be spending on figuring out how to keep indefinite human survival as the focal point that this is the project that is worthy of our best minds that's worthy of the funding that's worthy of international cooperation our our task is to recognize that this is that moment in the bible where the lord tells moses you, you, it's time to get out of town you got to go don't wait for the bread to rise now this is it and so what i'm optimistic about is that maybe Maybe if this reaches somebody else out there who understands what I'm saying, we have a hope of coming up with a confederation of people who actually understand what the job of our time is. The, the only other job, as I see it, is stabilize this place for as long as possible so that we can figure out if we can spread out or not. Mm. 
that's the counter argument, isn't it? I mean, I hear people say that all the time that, you know, why should we be investing in getting off this planet? Because uh, until we can actually resolve the problems that we have with this one, we're only going to screw up the next one as well. Josh, it's important to start excluding certain people from conversation. <laughs> we have this passion for inclusion. There's the disagreeableness again there. Well, no, it's not that. It's love. In other words, if you're freaking out in a lifeboat, right, um, you're endangering everybody else in the lifeboat. The, you know, they're, they're oceanic white tips circling around. So yeah. somebody, you know, administers a sedative and just like, you can't freak out here. Right now, this is super dire, super exciting. This is the time for heroism, for science, for people who understand what time it is. It's important that we stop, start excluding the voices from conversation that enervate us from saving ourselves. Eric, will you uh, play first date questions uh, with me for my subscribers at the end of each episode? Uh, I ask you a, a bunch of questions uh, like we're on a first date. Uh, total, just sort of Rorschach test uh, questions that, uh, this, that you can answer in any way you wish. I'm not really great at homoeroticism, but let's go for it. <laughs> okay. Uh, if, you, uh, if you're not a, a paid subscriber to the show, then uh, I hope you've enjoyed Eric Weinstein. And, uh, and if you want to join, then you can go to uncomfortableconversations.substack.com or send an email to uncomfyconvos at gmail.com and uh, my producer will put you on the list. Uh, okay. First aid questions uh, with Eric Weinstein. Uh, what's, the, what's the worst movie, Eric, that you've seen? Fisher King. Excellent. I really uh, didn't understand why people loved it. I, it was, I couldn't watch it. What's the best ice cream flavor? Um, probably Alfonso Mango. What's Alfonso Mango? Uh, Western India has a mango that only is available in May. I should not be talking oh. about this because I'm going to create a shortage. But uh, <laughs> it's the king of fruit. And if you've never had an Alfonso Mango, you can probably find the pulp anywhere but you're in for a real treat. Wow. Well, next time you're in Australia, uh, I have some Queensland mangoes to show you because uh, it's one of the th one of the things that I truly missed in the United States was having to endure. We have the worst mangoes. We have the Tommy Atkins. They're not Death good mangoes. Tommy Atkins. They're terrible. They're the terrible. I could never find a, a, a real mango. Product of Florida from the 1920s. Retailers love them because they're gorgeous and they never spoil, but they're inedible and they have the consistency of dental floss. That was just a little taste of our first date questions, which you'll be able to hear all of if you subscribe to Uncomfortable Conversations. Not just the questions, but of course all of our banter around them, which become a subsequent little episode of themselves. Uh, if you do subscribe, you will not only hear that, but you'll also hear no ads on any episode ever. And you'll get additional content, including opportunities to connect directly with me. You can subscribe at uncomfortableconversations.substack.com or follow the links in uh, the, uh, the podcast description. Uh, otherwise, I'll see you next time on Uncomfortable Conversations.